Once again, to Refresher, the Pop Culture Therapy Podcast, I am Chris Levine, and I will be your host again this time around. This is part 27 in our series called Psychology on Vinyl, where we try to understand both the subtle and blatant psychology behind and within famous records. This one is a biggie. It came out when I was 14 years old. And I don't think I could honestly calculate how many times I've listened to it from end to end in my life. Uh, This album has been acclaimed by writers and music critics as one of the greatest albums of all time. Uh, Back in 1995, the album was certified 10 times platinum. And the album subsequently received the Diamond Award for reaching this level. This was in 1995, and I'm sure it's still sold a couple copies since then. This time, we're going to be discussing the album, The Joshua Tree, which is the fifth studio album by the band U2. Now, I want you to think about something before we get into this. The month before this record landed on the shelves in 1987, Here were the U.S. top five songs on the charts. All right. So this was what was on top of the charts the month before the Joshua Tree came out. Number five, Keep Your Hands to Yourself by the Georgia Satellites. Number four, Touch Me by Samantha Fox. Number three, Change of Heart by Cyndi Lauper. Number two, Open Your Heart by Madonna. And number one, Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. Imagine first hearing the cascading guitar of the first track on the Joshua Tree, Where the Streets Have No Name, in the middle of this musical atmosphere at the time. Now, I want to say this because it's, I really believe this, no disrespect whatsoever to the top five artists the month before. I'm just saying, just to put it in perspective, nothing sounded like this. It also looked different. I remember as a kid buying this album and thinking that Bono and the drummer Larry Mullen must have gotten two new band members. I mean, who was the guy with the really, really short hair and the glasses in the back? And and who was the other guy with the long hair and the few-week-old beard and the hat? I didn't even recognize Adam Clayton or The Edge on first sight. These guys didn't look like the guys that I saw on Live Aid. And and who puts out a black and white album cover in the neon and fluorescent 1980s? This just all looked and sounded very different. And honestly, I got to tell you, I fell in love with this record right away. By now, I already had owned and loved their Boy 
October War, Unforgettable Fire, Wide Awake in America, and Under a Blood Red Sky records. I had 12 inches of the singles. I still do all that stuff. But this record was just another level. Now, this album and the next one, along with its accompanying film called Rattle and Hum, were essentially all about the United States of America. Uh, the working title for the Joshua Tree was actually The Two Americas. You see, this band openly loved the United States of America. America embraced them, accepted them, loved them, and welcomed them wholeheartedly. That's not lost on them. They love touring here by all accounts, and they love much of the cultural reference points. It's very obvious. Just look at this album. But at the same time, for example, their bassist, Adam Clayton, mentioned the bleakness and the greed of America under, under Ronald Reagan as a strong feeling that they had about this country as well. Now, their two producers, Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois, encouraged an interest in American roots music, which was new territory for you two because they were essentially born during the early European pre-punk era. Uh, in fact, Anthony DeCurtis of Rolling Stone summarized the Joshua Tree's examination of America both lyrically and musically by saying this. He says, the wild beauty, cultural richness, spiritual vacancy, and ferocious violence of America are explored to compelling effect in virtually every aspect of the Joshua Tree, in the title and the cover art the blues and country borrowings evident in the music. Indeed, Bono says that dismantling the mythology of America is an important part of the Joshua Tree's artistic objective. So there was a lot going on. It, it was not a typical record. Well, why don't we get into it now? As usual, we're not going to cover all the tracks, but we will delve into the psychological tone set by a few. Uh, let's start with the second song, the radio friendly, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It feels like it gets played as much now as it did in 1987. But again, in 1987, imagine any band releasing what is essentially a gospel song as a single. And now imagine it working. Uh, that's what happened here. But, but what makes this interesting even further is that the true sentiment which is being relayed through the song isn't one of faith necessarily, but one of doubt. And this song really caught on. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Topped Billboard Hot 100, the U.S. Cashbox Top 100, and U2's Native Ireland Singles Chart. It was also nominated for a couple of Grammy Awards in 1988. And it was nominated for Song of the Year and Record of the Year. Now, the sentiment for me in this song is that one can very much be a person of faith, but may still have their moments when the big life obstacles and question marks hit. And now that doesn't make them what a, a zealot might call a heathen, rather just a human being having a setback. And it was interesting to hear that on the radio regularly. 
there's a deep psychology going on on this track and it's deeply introspective for a song again not just played on the radio but at the time played on pop radio another single was the song with or without you now this was is and probably will always be played like crazy on the radio an insane number of times now the problem with that is that it becomes very easy to become numb to a song what i challenge you to do though is listen to it as though you've never heard it before lyrically musically and sonically listen to it like i listened to it as a 14 year old kid in 1987. ask yourself before during or since what sounds like this song i mean it's an extremely original approach to a song especially at its time when it was released and it was a massive hit it sort of reminds me what would happen with R.E.M. in 1991 with their song Losing My Religion. In the middle of an extremely heavy guitar world, this song comes out and it's featuring a mandolin. And again, it worked. These songs of super originality connecting with the masses is just not a typical thing. And a lot of credit is deserved, in my opinion, for these artists that just did their thing ignoring trends and the current flavors of the week now something great about choosing daniel lanois as a co-producer is that he, this man knows how to record a drummer drums are always crisp and perfect when he produces a record uh, on bullet the blue sky uh, the opening rhythm by larry mullen is a great example of this that, sh that song also sort of showed that the edge could go beyond the guitar style that he essentially created that bands like A Flock of Seagulls would emulate. Normally, his, his normal style was super influential. A lot of people took a lot from it. For example, Joey Santiago of the Pixies was quoted as saying that, quote, he's influenced me to try to be different. I didn't necessarily try to copy his style, but I appreciate the way he stood out. He was really one of the first ones to play with a delay pedal where he'd use the effect as an instrument. But on, on Bullet the Blue Sky, he put to rest any doubt that he didn't just innovate, but he could also wail on the guitar if he desired. Bono's instruction to him on these guitar parts after having returned angry from a visit to a war-torn country and wanting to help was he told him to put El Salvador through the amplifiers. Listen to it. Mission accomplished. This brings me to their overall reputation as a band. I find it personally interesting that these same four guys still very much appear to be close. It doesn't look like an act. It looks like they're essentially family. They're still playing together. They're still good. And they're all still alive. Every time I hear people go after, for example, Bono, for whatever reason, or this band, for being interested in helping people, it makes me wonder... Well, what, what would you rather them do? Would you like them more if one of them overdosed? 
if they dated celebrity women and then threw them away when they were done with them instead of being in long-term relationships? Would you like it if they got into fist fights more? Yeah, but you don't understand. These guys gave me a free album on iTunes that I never asked for. Really? Can you hear yourself? You're complaining because they recorded and gave you a free album? Maybe you'd like them more if they destroyed hotel rooms and slept with underage girls. See, that we could excuse and revere them for, but humanitarian efforts and non-scandalous lives and giving us free music? How dare they, right? Look, when anyone puts themselves out there to help others at the risk of being uncool, they're going to hear about it. People find it easier to scrutinize one's sincerity than they do to excuse the diva behavior of others. I find that twisted. So, for the record, Bono, I doubt you're listening, but if you are listening, good for you. You seem like a legitimately good guy, the whole band for that matter, even though I haven't been a super, super, super fan since Zuropa. This entire band gets my respect for constantly taking the high road and doing it right. Think about it. Bullet the Blue Sky on this record, Red Hill Mining Town, Running to Stand Still, Mothers of the Disappeared. Bravo, you two, not just for the excellent songs for us to listen to, but for caring. Now, there are, there are two songs on this album that I, I always kind of, for whatever reason, I put them together mentally. One, as was just mentioned, was Red Hill Mining Town. And the other is One Tree Hill. Uh, reason being, they both have some of Bono's most passionate vocal work on this record, and perhaps of all time. I read that One Tree Hill was especially personal to this band. Uh, this, is, this is why. Uh, after a 24-hour flight into New Zealand years before this, Bono was unable to adjust to the time difference between New Zealand and Europe. Uh, he left his hotel room during the night and met some people who showed him around the city. Part of that group was a man named Greg Carroll. Uh, he ended up taking Bono up to the One Tree Hill volcano site, which is one of the highest and more spiritually significant spots to the Maori people. Greg Carroll subsequently became very close friends with Bono, and the band, so much so that he actually moved to Dublin and worked for U2 in Dublin. Long story sadly short, while there, he was killed in a motorcycle accident. Now, not only was this right before the recording of this record started, but he was on the road that day doing Bono a favor by running an errand when the accident happened. This was some heavy stuff. You hear all of this very clearly in the vocal of One Tree Hill, especially the sublime and glorious ending. And all of the vocals were recorded in one take. 
Now, noting all of this thematically, notice what Bono said about all of this. He commented, he said, it brought gravitas to the recording of the Joshua Tree. We had to fill the hole in our heart with something very, very large indeed. We loved him so much. Perhaps that's why the Joshua Tree is so impactful. It wasn't a, well, we're under contract to provide another album situation. It was so much more. On this record, you 2 use their popular platform to help people, to soothe people, and to remember people. You can hear it, and it's what makes the amazing record what it is to this day. You know, I have evolved, too. I liked you 2 so much that I think I had blown them way out of proportion in the past. So much so that when I saw them dressed up like the village people in the discotheque video later, I hated it. I mean, these guys aren't supposed to act silly. They're you too. But now, though, I get it. Humans are allowed to be multifaceted. You can care with a smile on your face. That's perfectly okay. We can be serious about something and still be relatable and someone you wouldn't mind sitting next to you on a plane. And think of this, too. Imagine being, just say Bono. On the one hand, you walk on a stage and thousands of people are screaming and holding on to your every word. You walk off the stage and a, a portion of society is ridiculing you because you're openly concerned about other people and nations and the environment. You're viewed as self-righteous by some people who are probably doing absolutely nothing to help anyone. What if that was you? How would you come across on screen? How would you juggle between being human and all that comes along with that? See, albums like this, though, they put everything in perspective. I'm glad they exist, and we need more of them. Instead of making heroes out of people physically throwing $100 bills into a camera to show you how well off they are at the moment, or seeing music videos that exploit women who are often culturally forced to be exploited, to just be even slightly noticed in an internet world. All spending money on video budgets that could be used to feed communities and make the earth better. Personally, I'm thinking that we could all use more Joshua trees in our lives right now. We have once again arrived at the time on Refresher when we present you with a Spotify playlist. And for this Psychology on Vinyl series, the subject matter is the playlist itself. So we have for you this time around a Refresher podcast, YouTube, the Joshua Tree playlist. You can find it really easily on Spotify. Just type in Refresher podcast YouTube, the Joshua Tree, as is my normal custom. I divided up to side one and side two because that's the way I heard it in 1987. Side one, where the streets have no name. What an opening track for a record. Number two, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The third one, with or without you. Number four, bullet the blue sky. And number five, the very touching running to stand still. Side two, number one. Red Hill Mining Town. Number two, In God's Country. Number three, Trip Through Your Wires. 
Number four, One Tree Hill. Number five, a, a hidden gem, deep cut on this record. The song is called Exit. And number six, the very moving Mothers of the Disappeared. Well, that's our new playlist. Again, you can find this playlist really easily on Spotify. Just type in Refresher Podcast U2 The Joshua Tree. We'd like to welcome some new listeners to our little show. Our demographic report shows that we now have listeners in Glasgow, Kentucky. Welcome. We appreciate you being here and listening to Refresher. You know, this show simply wouldn't exist without you. If you could all do me a favor, please continue to pass this podcast along to your friends. Also, if you'd like to help keep this podcast stay up and running, if you would like, you may make a small monthly contribution. Just see the support this podcast link under the episode description. If you are so inclined, that would be great. But whether you're in a position or whether you have the desire to contribute financially, it it doesn't matter. Just feel free to listen and enjoy the show anytime you want. It is yours. As always, the music that begins and ends this podcast is by the band Dive. The song is called A Day Late, and it was written by Mr. John Villafuerte. But until next time, this is Chris Levine for Refresher, the pop culture therapy podcast. Everyone, please take care and do yourself a favor and remember that there's a big difference between worry and concern. We'll see you next time.